my name is Rod Jans, and you're listening to the Get Inspired Talks podcast. For this episode of the Get Inspired Talks podcast, we visit with Jenny Conkin. Jenny is the president and co-founder of Hallway House. At Hallway House, Jenny's mission is to offer hope, purpose, and dignity to people of the downtown east side of Vancouver. Jenny's also started a movement that helps to support Hallway House called the I Get To Legacy Project. The I Get To Legacy Project was inspired by her dad, Ron Conkin, who in 2009 was diagnosed with stage four melanoma and at the age of 48 was only given four to 12 months to live. From then on, his perspective changed and every day after those first four months, he would say, I don't have to, I get to, because I'm still alive. Now, please help me welcome Jenny Conkin to the Get Inspired Talks podcast. Jenny's kind of been a regular guest and I almost need to thank her because <laughs> she's helped me get a few things going and get get some podcasts going. She's always a, a willing guest and I really, I really appreciate that. But I love what she's what she does. So we're gonna find out more about that right now. So yeah, let's let's dive into that. And where are you hanging out today? Today I'm in beautiful Vancouver. I'm actually sitting in my living room looking at the view of uh, the Burrard Inlet and the North Shore Mountains. So yeah, it's uh, <laughs> a gorgeous day here in Vancouver. You have a great story that I often repeat, and I, I know you know this, but it, it's such an amazing example of the power of community and what happens when you end isolation. And I don't think people really know unless they've spent time maybe in areas like the downtown east side uh how debilitating <laughs> or how isolation just kind of makes the situation <laughs> quote unquote worse right and uh maybe you could just share with us off the top how whole way house got its start yeah absolutely I think you hit the nail on the head with the isolation. That's actually what inspired um, Holloway House to get started. My brother and I started working in the downtown east side at my grandmother's uh, low-income housing buildings in 2010. We had gotten a terminal diagnosis for my dad. Um, he had been diagnosed with terminal cancer, uh, stage four melanoma, and that was very shocking for us. I was a young, healthy guy, only 48 years old. And so we both made a change in our careers and we wanted to work with our family um, to be able to be there to support them. Uh, but at the same time, my grandmother was no longer able to take care of the building. So my brother and I went in uh, to be able to take care of those for her. And we had all these big ideas. You know, we were smart kids. We'd come out of university and doing really well in our careers. And we thought, you know, if, we, if we're going to be building managers, we actually want to make a difference and we can save the downtown east side. This isn't such a, you know, what's the big, what's the big issue? What's the big deal? If we help everyone, we can get them some clothes and we'll help them get food. Uh, we're, we're really smart. We can even help them write resumes and get them jobs. Um, and looking back, <laughs> I think we went through a lot of humbling in those first couple of years because what we realized when we got down there was um, the severe issue of isolation and loneliness. And that became very evident. Um, actually, in the first couple of months that we worked there, there was a gentleman who passed away in his room. And being brand new there, we had to go to the other tenants to try to gather some information about him. And out of the 85 residents that we had living in that building, not one person could tell me anything about him. Where he was from, did he have a family? Um, how long has he been here in Vancouver? Nothing. I couldn't get any information. And it brought this darkness over 
I think the entire building where you could see that the other men were almost peeking out of their doors and, and looking and thinking, that's what's going to happen to me. I'm going to die and it won't matter. No one will even notice. My life doesn't matter. And so I thought I might not be able to save the entire downtown east side or fix all of these problems, but we can fix this. We can build a community. People do not need to live alone, um, but we can have support around um, around us and and build a healthy and supportive community. So that's how that's what inspired us to get started with Holloway House. So yeah. I'm going to jump around a little bit here. I forgot to ask my the, my first question that I ask everybody, and uh, you you touched on it right there a little bit. But what prepared you during your childhood and sort of your teen years to do what you're doing today? Because you have a couple of really interesting parents who <laughs> maybe yeah. you could just yeah just just tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Sure, yeah. Um, actually, I had a really great upbringing. I'm really thankful for the family that I grew up in. I know not everybody has a healthy uh, family, and I really did. And we're not perfect. We're definitely crazy Italians, but um, I was I was very uh, blessed to be brought up in a in a great home. My parents, for a living, helped people, um, so they had a an intensive program that helped couples and individuals who were in crisis, who were trying to work through their baggage and their issues, and they helped save countless families. So growing up in that environment, I saw my parents have compassion for people who were hurting and, and really tried to reach out and help people. But I think what really prepared me about that was the understanding that every person has a story, whether we only see that outward behavior, um, and it's very easy for us to judge uh, people by their behavior without recognizing that they're hurting or they're going through something and that behavior is coming from somewhere. Um, and so now working with people in poverty and people who are marginalized um, and who often have lived, you know, in crime and different outward negative behaviors, um, it's really important for us to be able to see that they have a story, that something led to this, and then that leads to um, a heart of compassion. And I actually, it's really funny, when I first had to write my bi biography, the story that I chose to write about, because it's kind of awkward to write your bi biography, uh, but the story that I chose to write about was how my dad used to take us to elderly care homes in White Rock when I was growing up, and he would play the guitar and we would sing hymns on Sunday afternoons and as a kid that wasn't the most fun and exciting thing to do and I remember kind of complaining to him and he said he was like you know what Jenny he's like people are lonely we need to we need to reach out and visit he said imagine if that was your grandparents who had nobody to come and visit them and that just really stuck with me it's such a memory that now I cherish and now I work with elderly people um, in the downtown east side we work with seniors and veterans so just seeing how I think that built a foundation for the work that I do today. Um, I'm super thankful that I had uh, parents who instilled that in, in us. So. so the downtown east side is kind of notorious worldwide. <laughs> Maybe you could just describe what it's like in that area. And then I want to move on to what the results were of, of when you started to get people together and started to form community. And then we'll get to where you are and what you're doing today. So just Describe for us what's what's the environment like in the downtown east side. I often use the word uh, chaos when I'm describing the downtown east side. It can be very chaotic. Um, it's very unpredictable. Often when you're walking down the street, uh, we have lots of homeless camps and um, people who are struggling with mental illness issues, addiction issues, and really um, 
it can feel chaotic when you're walking through there. It's, it's often very shocking if someone has never been in that environment. Um, we see people obviously feeling completely um, at a loss of what to do. Um, so when you're walking through the downtown east side, you'll often see needles and other drug paraphernalia. We see a lot of poverty, but we see a lot of people trying to group together. And I think that's really in effort to combat their loneliness and their isolation and to feel like they're a part of something. We have hundreds of SROs, which are single room occupancy buildings in our neighborhood, um, where people are living in small units, most of whom are just trying to survive. And we often see people who are afraid and keeping their door closed and staying very isolated. And then we have hundreds of service providers who are trying to reach out and help all in different ways. And so there's a lot of food lineups and places where people can go to, to receive the services that they need. So there. I think the most famous, obviously, corner is Hastings and Maine. And when you when you walk through Hastings and Maine, it can feel scary because you have drug dealers on the corner, you have people selling things, you have people lined up in the streets with their sleeping bags and tents and and using drugs out in the open uh, in the streets. So it is it is a shocking neighborhood. It is heartbreaking. Um, and often when people ask say to me, you know, I actually try to avoid it and I don't like it. It makes me feel really uncomfortable and I feel guilty that I feel uncomfortable. And usually my response is, if you felt comfortable with that, that would be a very bad sign that your heart is very hardened because um, we shouldn't feel comfortable with people suffering. We shouldn't feel comfortable when we see such hurt and pain and chaos and people living in chaos. So it is it is very difficult to see and, and can be harsh to uh, to be in. Chaos is a good word for it. Sometimes I think of it's like almost like a war zone too. Like on, <laughs> there's a thing called check day, right? And uh, people all get their money for, if they're on social assistance, and then they go and buy drugs. And there's there's sirens all day long. Like it's just crazy on those days, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, yeah. the days leading up to check day can be very agitated. You can feel it in the atmosphere. People have run out of money, which means they've run out of drugs um, and they're very agitated. Um, and so just leading up to that, the week before is actually, a I would say, almost more difficult than the week of check day. But yeah, it, it, a lot of people describe it as a jungle. Like it just feels out of control. And it, and it is. It's out of control. So in your case, I know you're not there anymore, but you're... Uh, was it your your grandmother? You ha your family owned one of these single room occupancy hotels, and that's where you and your brother went to go and and manage this. Uh, you went to go and manage this place, and this is where you began to re have these <laughs> insights into the how detrimental isolation was. And so, sort of the next step is that you started to do some things. Tell us about that, and tell us about the impact of of what you did. Yeah, absolutely. So after uh, this gentleman passed away, I, I said to my brother, I said, we have to do something. We can, we can do something here. And, you know, coming out of the business world, I didn't know how to start a charity and we didn't really know what the next steps were, but um, we said, let's use what we have. So we had a community kitchen space on the ground floor and we got the residents together and we kind of asked them what they would like. And we decided to just start with a games night. I, I tried to figure out how do you connect with people? How do you reconnect um, when you've been living in isolation? And if you, even if you live in an apartment building, if you think about it, how do you make friends with people? You don't just go knock on someone's door and say, Hey man, do you want to be my friend? It's, it's kind of awkward, right? So we wanted to create that space. So we started by just asking our friends and family for some board games. They donated to us and we made coffee 
and we invited the guys down for a games night and we started like that. And then of course, because I'm Italian, uh, we had to have a family dinner, which uh, was less about the food. I mean, nutrition is definitely um, an issue that we saw that people were struggling with. There's there's food in our neighborhood. There's food that you can access. However, often it's not nutritious. But to me, the most important part was actually sharing a meal together, sitting down and sharing a meal. And when we first started, again, coming from the business world, we knew we wanted to partner with people. We couldn't do everything. So we wanted to to reach out to other organizations who were doing great things. So I quickly found a Quest Food Exchange who offers who offers uh, very affordable food. And they gave me a tour of their warehouse. And actually the warehouse director uh, said to me, he's like, Jenny, I just got this huge shipment in today. And I don't even know where I'm going to put all of this. We don't have enough freezer space. I've got to unload it quickly. And I was like, oh, and it's like, maybe you could take some up for, for your family dinner. I was like, okay, well, what is it? And I was kind of nervous because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to be able to do with this. And he's like, it's tortellini. And I was like, uh, I can work with tortellini because that, I've been cooking that my whole life. So our very first family dinner, um, I prepared everything. I got the tables all set. I wanted it to be really nice. And I'm waiting and it's, you know, it's quarter to four. No one's there. And five to four, still no one's there. Four o'clock, I'm starting to get a bit upset. I'm like, nobody's coming to my family dinner. And so I'm about to go march up the stairs uh, to call everyone down. And I turn the corner and the guys have all lined up with their food plates. And I realized, okay, they're used to food lineups. I was like, no, you guys come on in. We're going to sit down. We're going to eat together. And it took some time to break that culture and to build a culture of community. And so as we started these programs, we wanted everyone to feel very welcome, to feel very safe and invited, that they were a part of this. And so that's how we got started. The next thing that we really saw was the lack of a sense of purpose and self-respect. We often work, we work with mostly men. And so the men who, when they're not working, when they're maybe struggling with mental health issues, different things that they're facing, lost that sense of purpose. And so we know that everyone has something to contribute. So we wanted to give them opportunities to do that. So we started rebuild programs, which are really giving people an opportunity to use their gifts and talents um, and to contribute into the community. So whether that was the guys would always want to come down and help me set the tables at family dinner, or they would want to help wash the dishes afterwards or clean the floors. Um, but they wanted to give. They didn't just want to be always having a handout. And so we started programs where they could, um, where they could have a hand up really and, and contribute. And, you know, um, Chef David at the Dirty, Ro uh, the Dirty Apron um, came over and he's like, we should do a cooking class together. So we started a crock pot cooking club. Uh, the guys were so proud that they were able to learn something new, but also to, to like make you know, really fancy meals. And so we do things like that where they, they get to taste that success again and know that they have something to contribute. And then the third issue that we, that we found and that we wanted to confront was really, we call it recenter. And that's, that's going into a meaningful and purposeful life with support of someone next to you. So often, you know, if I'm going through something difficult or I want to take another step in my life, I have a support system around me. The gentlemen that we work with often don't. So uh, we create tenant support, which is walking alongside people. So if that next step is recovery or um, maybe wanting to get job training, or it could be wanting to find alternate housing, we have tenant support workers who work with them uh, through that continuum of care. So that's what we do. Reconnect, rebuild and recenter. And the results have been, I mean, Rod, I'll be honest. I, I often say me of little faith. Uh, I did not believe the results that we would see. I, my dream was very small, was to create some community. And what we saw was not only did they embrace it, but they actually started taking it over. So for example, the guys told me they wanted a coffee program and I was like, no, oh, cool. I'm like, yeah, coffee sounds great. I'm like, but I'm not coming here at six in the morning. So who's going to run this? 
And uh, we actually, so this young guy volunteered, he said he would do it. And there was this elderly man who lived in the building. His name was Mike. He'd lived there since 1985. And I just remember he actually used to scare me. He was quite small. He was a short little guy and he walked with a cane, um, but he struggled with alcoholism. And when he, when he wasn't sober, he was quite mean. He would call me names and just yell at me and kind of, you know, just complain about things all the time. And so one morning he had had surgery. So he was kind of stuck at home. He couldn't go to the bar. So he was sitting there watching this young guy make coffee and he's just being like a little jerk. He was just criticizing everything he did and kind of being rude to him. And so the young guy said, well, he's like, uncle, if, if you are, you know, if you know how to do this, I would really appreciate it if you would teach me. And Mike was like, well, okay, I'll show you how to do it once, but you know, I don't have time for this. And uh, suddenly within a week, I've got Mike at my door saying, all right, Jenny, he's like, we're making the coffee, but what about, we need uh, peanut butter and jam for the toast. He's like, I need more cream. We need more cream and sugar because, you know, and I'm like taking notes suddenly. I'm like, okay, all right, got it. And, and you know, Mike took on this job. We actually created a cupboard for him where he had his own lock and his own key where he had all of the supplies that he needed. And every morning he was down there at 630 in the morning, preparing the coffee for the whole building. He cleaned the kitchen every single day. You, you know, he comes in and he's like, you know, Jenny, I cleaned the kitchen, but we got to ask the guys to keep it up and they got to do their part. And, and uh, he just took such pride. And I remember about a week after he started, uh, this young girl came in the front door and I saw her talking to the front desk and she's all stressed out. And I was like, who is this girl? And she just didn't belong. And I was like, so I went up there. I'm like, are you okay? And she's like, she's like, yeah, I'm just really worried. I can't find this guy. And I, I don't know what happened to him. I was like, okay, who are you looking for? She goes, oh, Mike. And I was like, yeah, he's in the back making coffee. She's like, oh my goodness, I thought he died. Thank God. And I was like, okay, I'm like, sorry, who are you? And she's like, I'm his bartender. And I was like, oh my goodness, get out of here. You gotta go, go, go. And I'm like shooing her out the door. But he, you know, he had found purpose. He had a reason to wake up every morning. And and uh, every day he went down there and just did his best. And he and he called, he nicknamed himself Coffee Mike. He called himself Coffee Mike. And um, he passed away about four years later, but till the, honestly, till he passed away, he still did the coffee every single morning. And he was so proud of that. So to be able to give someone something to wake up for in the morning and, and to get out there and, and make friends and really yeah, build his community was, was super awesome. So yeah. story on so many levels <laughs> and I know you I know you have more of them but I mean even if it was just Mike right even if everything even if it was just that transformation you gave him some purpose and something to do in the last years of his life it's pretty pretty awesome that's great yeah and curtailed his drinking it sounds like too like that was just a serendipity he wasn't maybe even necessarily thinking about recovery it just sort of happened it sounds like it just sort of happened naturally where he just once he had purpose, he, he, uh, he drank less, let's say. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. He did. He honestly, his, his entire daily routine changed. Yeah. Yeah. He was amazing. And I, and I learned it was, uh, those, those, even if it seemed like a small transformation, it was those things that we were working towards, not these big numbers, but really people's lives and how can we impact people's lives? Yeah. I, I, you know, I know from working down there that sometimes people, um, you know, they want to know the big numbers, you know, and they, I'm glad we're having this conversation. I hope that if anything, one thing that people get out of this conversation is that's not how it happens. There's, it, it happens one mic at a time, doesn't it? That's, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? And I'm, I'm glad you said that. It's hard for people who haven't worked in our, in, in this field 
they want to see the statistics and how many people got sober and how many people got a job. And, and there it is. I just have to say how many people woke up this morning and felt like they had value, you know, and, and how, how many people know that they matter. Um, and for us, we, we had to say, no matter how much we grow, how much we evolve, we want to make sure that we keep the main thing, the main thing. And that's really loving people where they're at and allowing that to, um, to give them an intrinsic value. And through that, that's where your motivation comes for any sort of change for anybody. That's, you know, to know that you have value is, is, uh, that motivator. So I had one guy who our, our biggest miracle was, well, I don't know if I should tell you the story. My biggest miracle was that he washed his hair. That was, that was it. I was like, if he washed his hair, this is success. He took enough time to care about himself and love himself because he had friends now. He had somewhere to go. And, and so we, we count all those little miracles because uh, they, they matter to us. So, so uh, what are some of the other impacts that you've seen? You know, I started uh, by telling you that the way that we, we started Whole Way House was after a gentleman who had passed away in his room. And I just want to let you know, his name was Jean-Francois, and I was able to find his family. They'd been looking for him for 15 years. Um, he had suffered a lot of loss in his family and had a, had a bit of a nervous breakdown and, uh, and was living isolated. So that from that first gentleman who passed away and he was completely alone and seemingly no one knew anything about him, after... In, in uh, 2016, there was another gentleman who was a really big part of our community. His name was Ron. Uh, he was this like loud guy. He had prison tattoos. At first he used to scare me, um, but he started volunteering and getting involved and he was super funny. And he passed away suddenly and it was so hard on us. It, w- it was very hard on us because we were very close to him, but we, we had a celebration of life for him as we do for anyone who passes away in one of our buildings. And uh, it was amazing to see Rod because the room was so full that we had to bring in more chairs. There was people standing at the back. His family came. And it was just amazing to see that in only four short years, we went from someone who died completely alone to someone who passed away knowing he was loved, that he was cared about, and that he had a community around him to celebrate him and honor his life. So I think that to me is always what I can look back at and say, these are the steps that we're able to take to help someone know that they, they, val- they have value, that they matter. Everybody else around him was probably kind of happy about that too, I bet. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to weave I get to into this conversation? Because that was part of it too. You started this other, Jenny's doing a lot of stuff. (laughs) And she started this other really cool movement. And uh, it, it plays into this story where you found a way to give people some additional work to do and an additional purpose. So... Yeah. Why don't you tell us about that? And then we'll talk about where you're at today. For sure. So as I mentioned, my in 2009, my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He was given four to 12 months to live. And um, my dad was a super inspirational man. He was a public speaker. So he was already very mentally healthy. But I remember him saying to me after those first four months, when he was still with us and still still going strong. And he said, all the little things I used to complain about, he's like, my perspective has changed. He's like, I don't have to sit in traffic today. I don't have to wait in line at the bank. I don't even have to clean my garage. He's like, I get to do those things because I'm still alive. And he lived for another four and a half years and he was healthy and strong and he kept really changing his world around him. And that was his, that was his motto. I get to for everything that, you know, 
all the small things that we take for granted, he was, he was going to appreciate them. And so my father passed away on Christmas day in 2013. And I really wanted to honor his message and working in the downtown east side, as I said, I work with a lot of men who struggle with their self-worth, with their purpose, their value, and often aren't able to work full-time jobs or have different barriers to, to employment. And so when I first started working down there, I had to learn how to punch room keys. So if a, a man moved in, I had to punch his new key with a room number on it. And I thought, you know, if I can do this, this is something that we could create um, into, into a job. So I went to the hardware store and I found washers because they look like a little lifeline. And that's the name of my uh, parents program is relationship lifeline. And I wanted to stamp, I get to in there. And so I did, and it worked. Um, and it was something that we could teach guys to do. I wanted to create a job where they could do it at home in their own environment where they feel comfortable and they're paid by the piece so that they don't have that pressure and anxiety of someone standing over their shoulder, punching in a time card, but really that they were able to do this at their own pace. So someone who likes to work really fast can go as fast as they want or someone who likes to take their time uh, can do that as well. And there's no pressure on them. And they get used to working again and they get to also make something really beautiful with with their hands, they're working with a hammer and putting this together and measuring out the chains. And then they're very proud of their work. Uh, I actually got to go on to uh, breakfast television here in Vancouver with one of the gentlemen who started doing this work with us. And he said to he he shared on the in his interview, he said, you know, I had given up trying. He's like, I was so sick of disappointing people and disappointing myself. He's like, every time I tried something, I failed. He's like, but this opportunity, I was able to just try it slowly and I could do it in my own in my own pace which is often different from other people um he's like and there was no pressure on me so i didn't have to worry about failing and he became one of our best stampers he loves to work with jewelry he, he actually works at a jeweler's now which is amazing and it gives them that extra not only gives them some extra pocket money to, um especially if they're if they're struggling financially but it, they know that the money when we sell these goes back into their programs so now they are actually helping to pay for their own programs which means they're contributing and one of the guys said to me he goes so he's like so if you sell that online and then the money goes back into our programs is it kind of like i help pay for family dinner and I was like, that's exactly what you're doing. You are helping pay for family dinner. So you didn't get a handout. You're actually helping this program grow. And so they're super proud of that. And they're in taking that message. I can't tell you how many of the guys now say to me who used to, you know, there's often a victim mentality that comes along with because, because through their lives, they have been victimized and, and horrible things have happened to them. But it's, it's a message of empowerment. Uh, I get to choose my attitude today. I get to be thankful that I waited in line at the doctor's office because I get to go to a doctor today. So it's been a really inspiring message in our community as well. We also employ men who are coming out of recovery. So we partner with Union Gospel Mission. Uh, so men who are coming out of recovery, it's a good stepping stone before going back into the workforce after recovery and, and to be able to take that slowly. So it's been pretty amazing. And the project helped all the proceeds go back into our programs, so it helps fund our programs. Uh, we really try to be responsible and uh, good stewards of what we have. We create programs that are sustainable, um, so we we use this to to be self uh, sustainable in our programs as well. so good i was going to mention that victim mentality i mean just because i mean we're all victims in some sort of way we we all get victimized to some extent or another uh, but we the we the we don't have to choose to live as victims right and and i love that statement i'm so glad that we're having this conversation again it's just 
a good reminder for me again <laughs> that I don't I don't have to do certain things. I, I get to do certain things. And Absolutely. So yeah. as your dad's life came to an end, he had that powerful realization and started to have that attitude and I guess and share that with others. And I'm I was gonna ask you too if it's had an impact on the people that are doing the stamping and the people that you're working with. So that's that's pretty cool to hear that that that, that it is having an impact on yeah. their on their attitudes and the way they see life as well. Yeah, the guys from the recovery center often tell me that they're correcting other people as they share their stories. They're like, no, 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 you get to do that. And and uh, they said it spreads a lot and people really connect with that. So I think that's a beautiful legacy that my dad left. So it's called the I Get To Legacy Project. And it helps the guys know that they can also build a legacy, that they, you know, starting today, live out your legacy, live the way you want people to remember you. So, yeah. Yeah, just even philosophically, I heard someone say lately that like 98% of the world sort of have this, have a victim mentality. So it's such a great reminder. It's a great phrase. And uh, ho hopefully our listeners will think about that today, that they, they whatever they get to. And, and, and if, if you watch some of the videos and, and some of the material that you're putting out, I hope people will check out the, the Instagram account and that sort of thing and see. Uh, you you have people add to that phrase, right? Like I get to spend time with my children. I get to go for a walk. I get to enjoy nature. I get to, I get to go to a job. <laughs> all, all all sorts of different ways that people are applying that phrase, right? Absolutely, yeah. And it, and it goes to the positive things to remind ourselves to be grateful for them. And it goes to the, some of the things that we don't always feel grateful for. You know, one of the biggest times my dad would say it was when we were sitting in the hospital. And he would say, you know what, I get to be here today because I live in Canada, I have healthcare, you know, and he's like, if I lived in another country, I might not have access to a good doctor. So it, it just helps you to not go down the pity party road. And uh, yeah, absolutely. And, and the simple things, I get to live, I get to breathe, I get to grow. Yeah, so absolutely. It's another way to practice gratitude, isn't it? It sounds like it's a gratitude practice, yeah. Yeah, I start my morning every morning with what do I get to do today? <laughs> Very yeah. cool. So yeah, get us up to speed. Where is Holy House at today? What are you, what are you guys up to? So actually, BC Housing approached us because they saw such good results in our building. They said, Jenny, we don't know what you're doing, but somehow you're helping end the cycle of homelessness. It's a, it's a really a cycle. Often people will get into housing and then something will happen internally or externally and they'll leave and they're back on the streets or in the park. Um, and so it really is a cycle, but people were connecting and getting roots into our community so they weren't falling back into homelessness. Um, so they presented us with an opportunity for funding to help them reach out to other buildings and put our programs in there. So we worked with Union Gospel Mission first. They contracted us in to do some post-recovery housing programs so that people stay connected into community, don't get isolated after recovery. And it was funny when I first got there, you know, I, I thought I would need longer, but sober people remember what I teach them. So our programs went in really quickly. We were able to put in 14 programs in six months, which was great. And then and now we're actually working at the Veterans Manor. So we serve 133 um, seniors and veterans who are very vulnerable living in the downtown east side. Uh, it's 55 plus and they're all men. Um, the Veterans Manor was built in 1986 to house veterans, but as um, veterans who are coming out of homelessness. But as we have less and less veterans, it's now open to other um, senior men as well. 
we partnered with them to provide the support services. So they provide the housing and we came in and provide the services. And what I was shocked to find out in working in this neighborhood for so long, I did not realize how many seniors we had facing homelessness. I, I actually felt ashamed that I didn't know there were so many veterans living uh, in the downtown east side as well. And so uh, when we got there, we really had to get to know what was going on with them, what what were their concerns, what how were they vulnerable, and how could we help support them. And so the first thing we wanted to do, of course, was build that community, help them come out of their rooms, really build that support system, as well as quality of life, just be able to enjoy life. And many of them are not and are exiting the building because it's so chaotic on their street. Um, there are homeless camps, there are people using drugs outside, there are fights going on. So as an elderly person, I want you to imagine, you know, your grandfather, as an elderly person, that's very scary to walk outside and be targeted. They're, we found out that they were being targeted outside the bank on pension day. So we actually fundraised, we got a van every month, we go to the bank, we take them all out in the van and we go to each bank so that they can go and, you know, get their check. And a lot of them really are old fashioned. So they like to do that themselves. Um, but to go to the bank and be able to do that in a safe way where they get back into the van and no one's able to, and they have an escort with them, one of our staff members go with them. So these were the kind of things that we had to learn about that elderly people were facing. Also, you know, when you're not getting outside at all, we see that deterioration in mental health as well. So we wanted to make sure that they had an opportunity for outings and to participate in things. Uh, we do smoothie programs. We do a seated exercise program. Um, so every week we have a seated exercise class. And smoothies was my sneaky way of getting uh, vitamins and spinach into people. <laughs> um, but they really enjoy them. And, and we have volunteers come and spend time with them. It's a time that we get to sit down and chat together. Um, but every day there's a program happening that they can participate in. And, and it's available to them within their own home. And many of them have lived there for a long time. And when they first moved there, they were very proud to live there. They were very proud to, to be part of the Veterans Manor. And because of the changes in the neighborhood, a lot of them have lost that. So we wanted to rebuild that sense of pride for them, um, that they can have a great home. But, but we are now really working towards applying for more housing for seniors, now recognizing the issues that they're facing. There are many of them who don't uh, require the cluster support services in the downtown east side, that being, you know, whether it's for addiction or mental health issues, but would be very happy to live outside of the neighborhood. But the wait lists are so long for, for someone who's a senior to be able to find affordable housing. Uh, so we are working towards that. And, and that's our next big vision is to provide safe and affordable housing uh, that has a community base for seniors so that they aren't becoming isolated, that they aren't forgotten. But those support services are built into their home. So many of them are falling through the cracks and it's very easy to become homeless. Uh, if you imagine that, you know, one or two checks gets missed, they something happened with the government system, they don't know how to fill out forms. A lot of it's online. So our, our tenant support workers are there to help them with all of those things and, uh, and prevent that instance of homelessness. So that's where we are. I would imagine isolation is another major factor, hey, that, that you're helping to address. Absolutely. It's a huge issue. Especially working with senior men, often there's a sense of pride um, that they don't want to accept help or that I can do this on my own. And, and it often can come with a sense of shame and embarrassment when they can't do something for themselves. So once we're able to build that community, then we already have an organic relationship that's built. It's a, it's a true relationship. It's a true friendship. And our, and our support workers are able to identify areas where maybe they aren't getting out to their doctors often enough or they aren't getting 
uh, the supports that they need. So that community that we've built there even allows for, you know, so we'll go visit people in the hospital. But one of the biggest things that we've seen is that now the guys want to go visit each other in the hospital. You know, they'll make a card and uh, ask us, hey, does, you know, how's John doing in the hospital? Because they've become friends and, and there's that support network there. So they're able to support each other and not just have support from a, you know, a, an employee, but, uh, but they can do that with each other. So, yeah. So how do you envision the future? Where is, what's the future of Holy House? Where are you, where are you going with uh, all of this? So right now it's replicate, replicate, replicate. We would really like to, we're focusing on seniors. This was, uh, for lack of a better term, this was shocking to me. We want to be able to provide support systems inside of seniors' homes because a lot of people who were able to live independently 10 years ago, you know, living in a building, now have their needs have changed. And so if we're able to provide very practical support and this community building program uh, where people can support each other, then we can prevent uh, people having to go into the hospital, having to go into assisted living early, but they can age well at home. And so that's our next our next vision, our next mission is to be able to get out there and support uh, seniors so that they can they can live well at home. And I think it's a it's a very simple solution to a problem that is growing. I just found out that over 90% of our seniors who are homeless in Metro Vancouver are first time homeless. So that means that over 90% of our homeless seniors became homeless after the age of 60. And that study was published by Metro Vancouver Foundation. And, and I was thinking like, someone after the age of 60 became homeless. That's very scary to think that we're not taking care of our seniors. So that's our goal. We want to see seniors having good quality of life as well. So those community building programs are great. You know, whether it's a game of chess on a Saturday afternoon or enjoying a cup of coffee in the morning together, it really is life-giving to be around people and to just to just connect with people, right? When we're isolated, it, it really does begin to kill us. It's a, it's a long and it's a process. It's not fun. So well, super inspiring. You're you're inspiring. I always really enjoy talking to you. And um, one of the things that we've been asking our guests to do is to give a challenge. I wonder if you have a simple challenge for our listeners that uh, that that they can do around what you're doing. Yeah. Can I give two? Very small ones. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go for my it. First, <laughs> my first one would be when you wake up every morning, ask yourself what do I get to do today? And who do I get to impact? Um, I think if we set our intention for the day to who do I get to impact, we're always looking for opportunities of how we can help other people, um, how we can, we might not be able to change the world, but we can change our world. You can change the world around you and the people you have influence over, whether that's your family, your friends, your coworkers um, in your community. Um, and I think the more people who start their day off that way and, and have a outward focus to say, I can impact you. Like, who do I get to impact today? Um, it's going to, it's going to help all around. And so uh, I think that's a, a, my first challenge. And my second challenge would be to, to volunteer. It really find something that you're passionate about and give, whether it's your talent, maybe, you know, you're a web designer and there's a local charity that needs help with that or whatever it might be, but find something that you're passionate about and, and give into it because it will only give life back into you. So you'll be able to impact your community, but also it gives you purpose. And it, I think it really reignites something within us that inspires us to live more than just for ourselves. And I think, again, all around that gives us such a better rounding as a person that will, that will impact and change more lives around us and build a legacy. So 
Yeah, it's almost like your story of Mike, isn't it? You know, Mike helping out with coffee. It gave him some purpose. It gave him some new life. And it's not just people who are impoverished that that has that impact on. It's it's something that affects all of us, doesn't it? When we when we decide to to serve and to help out. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that, I think we were built for that. I think that's built inside of us. And when we don't use that, it can start to, you know, wear away at us. So two challenges and you probably have two websites (laughs) (laughs) that you want people to go and go and take a look at. So yeah. How can people get in touch with you and find out more about what you're doing? Absolutely. So uh, we have the www.igetto.ca and you can hear people's inspiring stories. Uh, you can purchase jewelry or we have our necklaces. You can customize a word if you want a guy to stamp that for you. Um, so you can find all about the I Get To Legacy Project at igetto.ca. And um, wholewayhouse.ca is our uh, website for Holway House, where we serve uh, veterans and seniors. And you can find out how to be involved, or you can just read more about our programs if you're interested in volunteering or supporting, or just being inspired by by people's changed lives. Stories like Mike on there. You can read about Mark, who washed his hair, and uh, and see some of the work that we're doing down there. So, so that's holwayhouse.ca. And uh, people always say, whole is an H-O-L-E. And I'm like, no, W-H-O-L-E, because we didn't want to go halfway. We want to be a whole way house. Great. And we'll have links to all of that in our show notes on if you're listening on iTunes or watching a short video, video highlight on YouTube or on SoundCloud, listening on SoundCloud. We'll have links to all of those things on the getinspiredtalks.com website. So yeah, thanks again, Jenny. When, when I knew that I was doing this podcast and I was thinking of inspirational people to talk to, you were on the list <laughs> right away. So Thank you. Thank you again for for joining me today. Rod, you've been such a great support system uh, to me personally, to Holy House, and and your work has always inspired me. So I've been a a long time friend and I'm and I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that I get to know you. So I appreciate that. And and uh, yeah, well, I love you guys. I love your family and uh, they've had an impact on me. So it's great to be able to help out in my small way <laughs> to help spread the word about what you're doing. So yeah, thanks again. Thank you, Rod. I appreciate it.